I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so today is a history day. We're going to talk all about the history of the pre-release. Okay, really quickly, I, I believe that most of my listeners, because you guys uh, are diehard Magic players, probably know what a pre-release is, but just in case for the few that don't. Um, so we have a tournament. The very first chance you have to play with Magic cards is what's an event called the pre-release. It's usually a week before the release of the event, um, and it gives you a chance to play with the cards for the very first time. Um, and I'm going to talk today about sort of how this event came to be and different things that, that had to do with it. Uh, and I'll walk you through all sorts of different facts about the history of the pre-release. Okay, so where did the pre-release start? Okay, so we have to go all the way back to 1995. Um, so they were trying to figure out a way to promote Ice Age. So Ice Age was the second ever large expansion. Um, so it was, you know, they, the, the company, so I'll give you a little history of where the company was at. So 1993, the game comes out. And remember, the game is just exploding when it first comes out. And they're just expanding as fast as they can. And just like everything they print gets sold out. So eventually you get to the point of Ice Age, which is a couple years in. So 93 is the game. It's 95, the summer of 95. And it's not that Magic's not doing really well. It is. But they're starting to get to the point where like, it's not just word of mouth that they, they should start doing some advertising. You know, it's, it's time to start actually advertising the product. And so they were trying to figure out a way to promote Ice Age. Um, and they came up with the idea of having a special tournament. A special tournament where people would play with Ice Age for the very first time. Now remember, at the time, there was no, the idea of the pre-release didn't exist. This is just like, what's a cool way to promote Ice Age? So what they did is, uh, there is this, uh, comic convention in Toronto. They ended up having the event there. So like the comic on the bottom floor was the comics and then on the top floor, which there was like a balcony, you could see it, um, was the event, was the thing in Toronto. Um, and anybody who wanted could come and play in it and it was a special tournament. Um, I actually got flown there by Wizards. I covered the event for, um, for The Duelist, which was our magazine. Uh, and I played, they asked me to play in the event because the point of view they wanted was from a participant. So I actually played in it. Interestingly, the way the event worked is that there was, it was a two-day event, and the top 32 from the first day advanced to the second day. Um, and I made it to the top 32, but because they had flown me there, I dropped out. And so number 33 got to got to go because no one felt it was correct for the person they flew there to to do well in the event uh, I, I had my experience playing in it um, and it was a fun event by the way it was the only event I can ever remember that was played for anti so early magic you would um, the way early magic was played is you would put a card you draw seven cards and flip up your eighth card and then the winner of the game would get the loser's card Magic. This is how magic was played in the early days. Uh, the ante quickly, quickly went away. It was not particularly popular. In fact, one of the most unpopular things the game ever did. Um, but anyway, this event was played for ante. And so what happened during the course of the time is you would go up and down cards, which would sort of change what you were playing. Sometimes, for example, you'd win something that was really amazing in another color, and you'd go, oh, I should be in that color now. Or maybe you'd lose something, go, oh, I don't have enough of this color. Maybe I have to change. And so... Um, my combo was, uh, I had Zern Orb, which was a broken card where you sack a land to get two life, and a card called Vixing Arcanix, where you made the opponent guess the top card of a library, and they lost two life if they guessed incorrectly. 
And so it was at a tournament where people didn't know the name of the cards. It was, you know, they, they, they were playing the cards for the first time. So anyway. Um, so the cool thing about the event was, because it was a spectacle, what they did was they made a big production out of it. And so armed guards carried in the boxes, like chained up in boxes. And they, you know, they unlocked the boxes. And uh, meanwhile, the audience is chanting, Ice Age, Ice Age, Ice Age. Anyway, it's a very cool event. It was a fun event. Um, if you want to hear more about it, I, I've, I've had podcasts where I, I go more and more in detail. So if you want to hear all about how I met Caleb, Caitlin, and I don't know, weird things like that, you can listen to that podcast. But anyway, we did it. It was a huge success. Uh, Dave Humphreys, by the way, I, Dave Humphreys now, he's a Hall of Fame member, uh, you know, a long-time pro player. He now works with me. He's a, a developer. Um, he won that event. Um, so, you know, that's the first place I ever actually learned of Dave Humphreys was that event. Um, anyway, um, so, okay, we did that event. It was very successful. People liked it. It was kind of cool. So the next set we put out was Homelands. Uh, and so um, we were tasked with trying to come up with a cool way to do Homeland. So uh, there was an event called The Gathering. I also did a podcast on The Gathering if you want to hear the full-blown version of The Gathering, which is a, was a crazy event. But as part of that event, we once again did a pre-release. So it was a chance to, for the very first time, ever play with the cards. Um, and so we had a pre-release. Uh, that one had a little less fanfare. We spent a lot more energy in other aspects to promote it. Um, like an Ice Age, the event was the pre-release, but at the gathering, there's many things going on. Um, and like, even for example, the, the reporters, I don't even think, like we had the pre-release on a different floor, but the reporters were on like the top floor on that. I was actually at the top floor. I have no idea where the pre-release was. I know it wasn't on the top floor. Um, but once again, we had a, a it was a big to deal. We had a pre-release. Um, I mean, a, a singular pre-release. Like, hey, the one place to play this before it comes out is be in New York for the gathering. Okay, so the next event after that was Alliances. Uh, I think for Alliances what we did is we had, we had more than one pre-release. I think we had, I think we had two. Um, the one I remember was, uh, it was Pro Tour Los Angeles on the boat on Queen Mary. We were on the Queen Mary a bunch of times. And uh, I think on Sunday was the pre-release, Saturday or Sunday. But anyway, during the Pro Tour, the pre-release happened. You could play in the pre-release. It was a special thing. I think there might have been one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, if my memory's correct. So we sort of branched out a little bit and said, oh, okay, we'll make it a little easier for people to come to this. But we still had a special one-of or two-of event that you came to. Um, then the next set was Mirage. So Mirage, we did another big spectacle thing. Uh, we had started the Pro Tour earlier that year in, in 1995. Um, and, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Ice Age came out not in 95, was it right? Ice Age came out, no, 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 Ice Age came out in 95, 96, the Pro Tour started in 96. So it's now, um, the fall of 1996, and we decide to have a pre-release Pro Tour. Um, so, Pro, uh, Pro Tour Atlanta, uh, was, so the players came, they opened up their packs, they had never seen the cards before, but the difference is now it was a Pro Tour with, you know, money on the line and prestige on the line. Um, and it was funny because the previous set, Ice Age, um, was not the strongest limited format. I've talked about this before. Uh, it really, really was not made for limited, even though obviously the pre-release was a limited event. Um, so we had spent a lot more time and energy in Mirage making it friendlier for a limited play. In fact, Mirage was the first set we really, really... Um, it was designed with limited play somewhat, but it was heavily developed with limited play. 
Um, and so it was fun watching people open up their cars and sort of discover for the first time. Like, it, it seemed like you had... The thing about, um, if you played a lot of Ice Age, when you played Mirage, you just felt like, oh my god, I got an amazing set of packs. Because in Ice Age, that would have been an amazing set of packs. But in Mirage, it was normal. Um, but anyway, so the event, the event had the reputation of being a little luck-based, because the winner of the event, a guy named Frank Adler from Germany, um, really, that was his one claim to fame. He won that event. But it turns out, if you actually look a little deeper than that, at the top eight, um, six of the top eight went on to make another top eight. Darwin Castle came in second, obviously, Pro, uh, Pro Tour Hall of Fame. Mike Long, Chris Pakula, Matt Vianu, Terry Bohr. You know, these were names of people that would go on to do other cool things. That, like, these were, you know, pros that, um, you know, when, when you talk about top eights that like, oh, one of the metrics we look at top eights is if you count up all the top eights of people who are in that top eight, like, okay, the, if the people who were in the top eight, the, the number of top eights they were in, um, that's, I mean, it's not near the top. There's a few that are crazy. But that is impressive, the fact that six of the eight would go on to make yet another Pro Tour. And some of them, you know, Darwin had five Pro Tour top eights. Uh, Bakula had three. Long had four. You know, we're talking about people that had many top, you know, many Pro Tour top eights. Um, that event also, by the way, is the one where Terry Bohr, while playing Darwin Castle, do you know that? Well, real quickly. Uh, there had been at that event a team event, and a guy named Mark Chalice had fooled Terry Bohr with a trick um, where he said, do you have any fast effects um, to sort of test him? Terry misunderstood how the trick worked, did it against um, Darwin, but did it at the wrong time. Effectively, he gave up his... T- he had the win in his hand, but by asking the question and Darwin saying no, Terry gave up the window by which he could do it and ended up not winning that turn and not winning that game and not winning that match. And because of that, foregoed winning, um, winning the Pro Player of the Year. So uh, some have said that's the most costly mistake ever on the Pro Tour. There's other costly mistakes, I guess. But uh, Okay, so for Mirage, by the way, so we did a big... So the first kind of pre-release was at the Pro Tour, but we decided that we liked what the pre-release was and we wanted to branch off a little bit and, and make it something that wasn't just a one-time special event, but was more open to people. So for Mirage... My memory is we had like 50, we had 50 pre-releases, most of which were, which were in the, um, the majority of which were in the uh, North America, were in US or Canada. Um, and what happened was they asked everybody where they wanted to go. I said that I wanted to go to Alaska. I'd never been to Alaska, I thought it'd be exciting. Uh, and the last minute I got switched to Toronto, not that Toronto isn't cool, I just had been to Toronto before. Um, because there were some, they were worried about the event and I, I had some experience running events, so they sent me to Toronto. I had a great time in Toronto. I, I met uh, Hall of Famer Gary Wise for the first time. Um, I, got, I, I, I had been in Toronto as a kid, but I guess the first time I was in Toronto uh, for magic. And so I, I got to see some stores and stuff. And it was fun. It was, I, I had a good time. Um, but anyway, so Mirage was the first general pre-release in which we tried to have pre-releases. And the way the pre-releases worked back then was they were regionally based. That any one region... Uh, and usually that was a bigger city, would have a singular um, pre-release. So, for example, in Seattle, you know, um, for a long time our pre-release was run by a guy named Tim Shields. It usually was at the Seattle Center, and it was hundreds of people. Um, and for quite a while, that is, I, I will get there, they, they change over time. Um, but so, the pre-releases early on were, were regional, and each time we were sort of expanded a little bit. Like I said, we had about 50 pre-releases with Mirage, 
Uh, and then we would keep expanding upon that. Okay, so the next big sort of innovation of the pre-release happened during Tempest, which is a year later. Uh, now that it was a thing, we decided we wanted to put a little more pomp and circumstance, so we decided to have a pre-release card. So the idea was, this was something you got only if you attended the, um, the pre-release. Now, we, it wasn't something we... The idea wasn't... It was a... We had long ago learned the idea of a truly unique, like a mechanically unique card was a problem. So what we did was, it was a special version. Um, early on, I think we just stamped the date on it. That, that was the first version we did. We just stamped the date. Um, and so, like, it was a... It was a the idea was, if something you would find in the set, usually it was a rare at the time. Um, and, like, the first one was Dirt Call Worm for, for Tempest. Um, I don't know why we chose... Cho- I mean, it was a rare. We thought it was exciting. It was a big, you know, worms or dragonish things. Um, it didn't have anything to do with the set, per se. I think as time goes on, we would start getting into more integrated into the set. Um, but if we look at the early, like, you know, Tempest had Durkal Worm, Stronghold had Revenant, Exodus had Monstrous Hound. They're just pretty generic, um, just cool cards from the set we thought people would like. One of the things we said early on was to make the pre-release cards creatures, um, because what we learned was, or what we thought was, that we wanted something that had a little more presence, stayed on the board, that some people get excited about, they could put in their decks, and that they could sort of, um, I don't know, we, we thought that it, it had a little more presence as, as, as a, a creature. I think we would occasionally give away, I think there's a few examples later on, like of artifacts and things, uh, but we usually made it something that had more presence to it. Um, then with time, what started happening was we started saying, oh, well, not only should we just give away a previous card, but we should make it a little more iconic of what the set is. And so we started sort of picking things that we thought was more symbolic of the set. Like Durkal Worm has nothing particularly to do with Tempest per se. It doesn't use the mechanics of it. It doesn't hit any sort of theme of it. It's pretty, pretty generic. Um, so we started sort of moving closer to doing things that at least thematically match. Like uh, Urza Saga had Lightning Dragon, which I think had Echo which at least was a mechanic in the set. Um, and then we started trying to make them a little more fancier. So uh, in Invasion, um, Raven Kavu was our card. It was a, it was a gold card because it was a gold set. Um, and uh, we printed it in Latin. So the idea was it was something unique in that it, like you could get Raven Kavu in the set, obviously, but not in Latin. And then for a little while, we did other languages, Questing Feldergriff, I think in Greek, Fungal Shambler, I believe it was in Arabic. Uh, stung, uh, for Odyssey, we did Stone Tongue Basilisk in Swahili. Uh, for Torment, we did Laquatus' Champion in Russian. And for Judgment, we did Glory uh, in Hebrew. And as you can see, we are starting to sort of use the mechanics of the set that we start to get cards that are more endemic of the set. Um, you know, try to, try to capture what the set was about. Um, we then started messing around with doing alt art. Um, we, we tried a lot of different things over the years. Um, alternate art was very, po- very popular. Um, and then eventually what happened was we got to um, boxes. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll get up to there. I haven't got there yet. But uh, when I get to the boxes, I'll then talk about how that changed the pre-release cards. I'll, I'll get there. I will get there. Okay. Next thing we did is um, we... Uh, what's the order? I think the next thing we did is we started doing what's called achievement cards. So I did a pre-release for Unglued. Uh, once again, this was a one-off pre-release at Gen Con. 
So this is back in 1996. Um, so once again, if you think about it, we had started doing we started doing regular pre-releases at that point, but Unglued was a supplemental set. It wasn't a normal set. So we did one giant, um, I mean, there was a, there were, there, there, it was all weekend long, so you could play, there were, there were a bunch of tournaments. So it wasn't a singular tournament. So it was sort of a pre-release series. There were flights to, to play in. Um, and Unglued was fun. So I was trying to figure out a way to make it, because the idea was that it wasn't just about winning. It was about having a good time. So what we did is I had a system by which if you, won a, if you won a match, you got a ticket for a raffle, but also I had a whole list of things you could do to win tickets. So really to be successful, winning was a way to sort of get, get prizes or potential for prizes, but just do, clucking like a chicken or you know, doing certain, setting up certain kinds of things um, would enable you to earn tickets. So the idea was everybody earned tickets because everybody was encouraged to have fun and do goofy things. Um, and I was very, if I saw fun things happening, I would give tickets away. Um, so years later, we were trying to figure out ways to sort of add value. So we created what's called an achievement card. And the idea of achievement card was, here are things you can do that are thematically rated to the tournament, to the pre-release, that are just fun. Um, there was no prize associated with it other than just kind of, hey, here's a task. You're a gamer, you know, opt in. Do you want to do this? You could do it. I think Commander, the original Commander, uh, we now call it Commander 2011 because Commander became a regular thing. But back in the day, it was just Commander because there was only one. Um, that was the first set to have a, an achievement card. And I, I, it, it just added some other layers of things you could do. It also was us starting to think about thematically affecting the pre-release and trying to make the pre-release sort of connect into the theme of the set. Okay, so the next big thing that changed was, for a long time, pre-releases were regionally based, right? Like I said, I would go to Seattle Center and there would be a giant event. Um, we started adapting sort of how that, we started trying to make things more beginner friendly because what we learned was pre-releases became the event, the most common event for new players to come to. And the most common event for a, someone who had never, had never come to OP before to come to. So we started doing things. We started adding elements where you could play with pre-constructed decks. We started adding in two-headed giants so that you could play with a friend that already knew how to play. Um, and we started layering things like that in. Um, but then the next big thing we did was we started doing our data. And what we realized was that the pre-releases worked great if you happen to live in a region where you could go to one. Um, and so we revamped what we did. This was really controversial all the time. We moved the pre-releases from being a regional thing to being a store thing, um, and by doing that, we allowed we allowed pre-releases to get to a lot more places. In fact, in just the I think within one year, we had doubled the number of, of people attending pre-releases, and I think by a year or two later, we had like tripled or quadrupled it. Like going to stores allowed so many more people access to a pre-release because um, even people, by the way, who lived in the city, like, if you couldn't get to, you know, if, if you couldn't get to, to um, Seattle Center, which is downtown, you, know, you might even live in Seattle and live in a region that had one, but not be able to get there. Uh, and so by making it, moving it to your local store, we greatly improved people's ability to get there. Um, it changed what the event was, it made it smaller, but it made it kind of more personal, and it let the store owner really sort of jump in and have some fun with it. Um, and we've, we've done a lot of things working with the store owner to try to figure out how to make the things more fun. 
So the next beginning of innovation came during Meriden Besiege, which was the second set in Scars of Meriden. Um, so what happened was the, the story in Scars of Meriden is we come to Scars, we come to, back to Meriden, we're returning to Meriden, and we discover that the Phyrexians have gotten uh, a toehold. There, there have been a few, I mean, that actually in the original Mirrodin, we had dropped a few tiny hints that was true. But you come back and like 20% of the cards have a mirror, I'm mean, sorry, have a Phyrexian watermark. That the Phyrexians, although not yet discovered by the Mirrodins, have firmly taken hold. They are invading. So the middle set, Mirrodin Besiege, was a giant war. And then the final set, you didn't know the name of the final set. It was either going to be New Phyrexia or Mirrodin Pure. New Phyrexia, the Phyrexians won. Mirrodin Pure, the Mirrodins won. And we didn't tell you. People actually purchased the product and store. I mean, um, stores purchased the product, but not knowing the name of the set. Um, and the idea was there was a giant war. Mirrored Besiege was a giant war. So we came up with this neat idea of what if you got to choose a side when you came to the pre-release. Um, and so what we did is um, we we divided the set in half. Half the set had mirror and watermarks. Half had friction watermarks. The sole exception was the uh, the planeswalkers. The planeswalkers didn't have. Um, didn't have a watermark. But other than that, every single card had either a Mirrodin, planes, a Mirrodin watermark or a Frexian watermark. And it was half the set for each. And then we divvied up the sets and made special booster packs for the pre-release in which you could choose your side. You could choose to be on the Frexian side or choose to be on the Mirrodin side. Um, now, we were nervous at the time. We ended up setting... Um, a little extra to the stores, just in case, because we didn't want people to run out of one side. Turned out it's pretty evenly matched. I think the data was something like 52% picked Frexian and 48% picked Pygmirin. Um, so anyway, and that was us really realizing that we could have more th themes to our Pro Tours. Um, so then the next one that, uh, I mean, we started doing more to add a little bit of flavor, encourage stores to do stuff. Uh, then at Dark Ascension, which is a year later, the second set in the in, in Estrada block, we had a little game we played. Where we gave stickers to the store owners, and the way it worked was we realized that if a vampire bites somebody, they become a vampire. If a werewolf bites somebody, they become a werewolf. If a zombie bites someone, they become a zombie. If a spirit kills you, you become a spirit. Okay, that one was a little disturbing. But um, the, so the idea was uh, a certain number of people were designated as either a vampire, or a werewolf, a zombie, or a spirit, and they got a little sticker. And then anybody they played, if they beat them, they turned them into whatever monster they were. And then at the end of the tournament, four rounds, if you either had started as a monster or if you had lasted as a human, if you didn't become a monster, you got a prize. Um, and it wasn't a, this wasn't a giant game, it was a little game. Um, so the next set, Absent Restored, we tried something a little bit bigger. So in the story, the flavor of the story was Avison, this angel who had been protecting the land, had been trapped in this place called the Hell Vault, which was this, this weirdly shaped monument. And what we did is we made the monument out of cardboard, a big version of it, and sent it to every store. And inside it was goodies. And so what happened was you, as you, the store, played, you as a team, as the whole store, would slowly earn and open up the Hell Vault, and then there were prizes inside. Uh, it was very interesting. Some people loved it. Some people were... They, they were grumpy about what they got inside, and we had done this thing where we randomized it so some stores got special different prizes inside, and people didn't like that. And So anyway, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. I mean, it, a lot of people went to it. It had some controversy to it. Um, so the next release was Return to Ravnica, 
and we were back in Ravnica and we had guilds. So we did something new. We introduced what we called uh, pre-release boxes. And the idea was you could choose one of five choices, the five guilds. So Return to Ragnarok had five guilds, Gatecrash had five guilds, both worked the same. And then you could pick your box. Um, the cool thing about it was it was really flavorful. It's like, oh, what's my favorite guild? I could pick it. And then what we do, did was one of the boosters was sort of specially pre-made. We gave you cards to allow you to make sure you had a leg up to play the guild you wanted to play. So if you picked, let's say, you picked Is It. Well, then one of your booster packs was a specially made card uh, pack that had just Is It cards in it and gave you an Is It land, uh, you know, blue-red land, and gave you gold cards and gave you things that helped you play Is It. And it gave you a special pre-release that was an Is It pre-release. Now, previously, previously to this, the pre-release card wasn't something you were allowed to play with because everybody got the same card. We didn't want it to warp the environment. But now that people could pick a card that's more what we wanted them to play, we let them play it in their thing. Um, and so the pre-release boxes were a huge hit, so much so on our side that we, we kept them as a thing. Um, one of the things we're always looking for is trying to make it easier for the people running the tournament. Um, there's a lot of value of moving it to the local store, um, but one of the downsides is that the people running it, you know, we're asking people to run tournaments that aren't necessarily, I mean, these people run Friday Night Magic, but, you know, we, they're, 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 there's a little bit of expertise of, of how, much they, how good they are at running events, and so we want to help them. We want to make sure that it's not too complex for them. And plus, a lot of times it's one or two people running an event with lots of people, and so we want to give them a hands up. Turns out the pre-release box made things a lot easier. Just, just give them this box. Everybody gets a box. Now, Ravnica, Return to Ravnica is a little more complex, so they had to choose a box. Um, but people really liked it. Um, the downside of Choose a Box, well, I'll get to the downside of Choose a Box. So we did that, and then for, um, for Dragon's Maze, we did this thing where you could see the guilds on each side of the box. So you got to pick one guild, and you flipped it over, and then you, you essentially picked two guilds that connected. So if you picked Boros on the front, it was one of the guilds from... Which, side, which one was Boros? Boros was in Gatecrash. So you then could, you got one of the Return to Ravnica guilds that also had either white or red in it. Um, then for Theros, we continued to do choose a box. We paid, did pick your path. There was monocolors, one of each monocolor, and each one represented something. You could pick that. Uh, and we did a giant sort of journey of the hero thing where all year long you had a card and you could go to events and get it all stamped off and you finished it, then you earned something. Um, and we also did a thing at the event where there was a special side thing. I think it was fight the Minotaurs at Theros, fight, oh no, sorry, fight the Hydra at, uh, fight the Hydra at Theros, fight the Horde of Minotaurs at, um, Born of the Gods, and then fight the guy, was it fight, was it fight, um, Xenagos? I think it was fight Xenagos or fight the, fight a god at Journey to Nyx. Um, and we learned a bunch of things from that. Um, you know, later that year, 2015 in the summer, we, we had a thing where it was all about Garrick, so we gave you a special Garrick card, you could fight Garrick. Um, uh, and then cons of Tarkir, we let you choose your con, and then um, I know in, in Dragon Tarkir, there's a special dragon game where we give you dice and you threw dice, re representing dragon's breath, and it knocked down things. Um, and then we started getting feedback. We, we experimented with kind of doing more things at, at pre-releases, uh, and we started experimenting with extra games. So we got a bunch of feedback both on the deck box, choose your own deck boxes, and the extra games. Players liked the Choose Your Own Dex box when it came to um, something like Kanzatar Kier or 
um, Ravnica where it made sense that you were choosing something. You know, because, hey, I, I do want to play this clan or that guild. Uh, it was kind of weird at Theros, and it was a little bit pushed, and players didn't like that. The other problem we had with Choose Your Own was because they were different pre-release cards, people would try to figure out what was the best thing, and they would look at the cards from the set, and, you know, the players who were, were good at this would write articles about, if you want to win, this is the guild to choose or the clan to choose, and so what started happening is people would run out of certain boxes at pre-release events, and people were becoming unhappy, um, and so we decided to move back to a singular box. Um, we are open to the idea of choose your own on a, a set where it really makes sense. It's not that we've written that off, but that's no longer the default. Default is the singular box. And what we found about the side games is we got a lot of feedback from the tournament organizers, from the people, sorry, from the store, runner, the store owners, that it was just proving to be too hard to both run a pre-release, which is pretty complex, and run these side things. And although there were players that adored the little side games, we decided to pull back a little bit. <coughs> Part of what we're trying to do is make an awesome experience, and so we want to work with the store owners that are running events to do so. Um, what we have done is we've tried to weave in the sort of activities more into what's going on. Sometimes it'll involve either the pre-release itself, or it'll be things that can be self-run. For example, in Shadows Over Innistrad, there's a little puzzle inside your box. In Kaladesh, we gave you a little um, thopter that you could build in your own time. So their idea were things that were a little enhanced it and gave you something to do, but wasn't something the store owner had to run, because that was proving problematic. Um, the pre-release card, by the way, um, so what we started to do was we went from having a singular pre-release card to having a, a, a group of pre-release cards. So if you picked a certain clan at cons, you weren't guaranteed a specific card, but you were guaranteed a card that fell within your clan. Um, then what we realized, once we did singular boxes and we didn't have the themes to pick, um, we ended up going with a system now where any rare mythic rare, you can get any rare mythic rare, it's premium, it's stamped, it's a special pre-release card, but now we've opened up, there's lots of pre-release cards, um, and we've made it, for people who collect pre-release cards, we, we created a new uh, design, a new collecting challenge for you. Um, but now, you can still play with the pre-release card, because people like playing with the pre-release card. Um, but it is now opened up. Um, we went through a lot of iterations of how to do pre-release cards. Um, one of the things you'll see, one of the themes you'll see that runs through this whole thing is that the we will try something, the audience will say what they think, and we keep adapting, keep playing. And like I said, we're not done with pre-releases. We're still trying to do different stuff. For example, um, Amiket is out now. The trials. We're, we're definitely trying to now. That isn't just a pre-release. The, the, the trials extend more than just that. Kind of like with Theros. We're experimenting with themes that run not just for the pre-release, but through the, camp, the entire campaign of something. Um, but there was a puzzle at the pre-release. There was things to do at the pre-release that were tied to it. Um, our big thing right now is just we want to make sure that whatever's happening at the pre-release, that the focus is on the pre-release. Uh, one of the notes we definitely got as we were drawing focus away was people wanted to focus on the pre-release. And so that is what we're doing. And when we get extra value and do extra cool things, um, you'll notice that the boxes, we've, we've really uh, had a lot of fun trying to customize the boxes and make them really flavored to what the, the set is. Um, you just need to look at the boxes at, at the, some of the recent pre-releases to say, wow, we really, you know, the boxes are, are taking on a whole new life and having a, really enriching the flavor. Um, the other thing we did, Return to Ravnica started this, is... When you got Return to Ravnica, you open up your box, and we gave you, like, 
a sticker and um, I think a die and there's a letter from your I don't know, guild leader. Um, we, are, we're, we are also looking for chances in the box to, to put cool things in there that are flavorful, that sort of help reinforce things. Um, you know, that we're always trying to, to, make, to, to improve upon the experience. Um, are there more things to do? Well, l- l- let me admit this. I'm not, I'm not too far from Rachel. Um, one of the things that I want is I always want to create open dialogue. So I'm trying to tell you the history of things we have done. But part of that comes with it. Where are we going? What can we continue to do? We are always talking about ways to improve pre-releases. In fact, we've had some conversations recently about some very radical things that we might do with pre-releases because we're, we, we always want to kind of up our game and do cool and new things. Um, and so we are always talking. We're always pushing the envelope. And that, you know, I, I think back, I, I've been to a lot of pre-releases. I've been to a lot of pre-releases. Um, both, um, we, we always have employee pre-releases that are usually a, a day or two before you guys have your pre-release. Um, and we always, whatever you guys are doing, we try to rec- uh, recreate it. And then I always make it, I, 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 I've been doing this a long year, so I don't, I don't hit every pre-release, but I try to hit a lot of the pre-releases. I like to go and watch people play in pre-releases. I love to talk to people. I, lo- I love first impressions of the set. So I love to see people play. I love to see their experience building sets, I mean, building, building their deck. I love watching them play and then talking to them. Um, there's a lot of just really good information you get off people when they play for something for the first time. Um, I read online a lot, first impressions when you see it, but that's just a different animal than first impressions when you play it. Um, it's also the reason why I ask questions on social media all the time. I want to know what you think when you actually got it in your hands and played it. Um, but anyway, I've gone to a lot of pre-releases. You know, I've gone from the, you know, I was at the very first pre-release ever uh, in, in Ice Age. Uh, I was at the Gathering. I was at Alliances. I was at the Pro Tour. Uh, I, you know, and I, I visited a lot of, of pre-releases. Um, some around the country. I, I've, I, a lot of times we will tie pre-releases into different events. So I've, I've been to pre-releases not just here in Seattle. I've obviously been to a lot in Seattle. Uh, but I've been, in, you know, around the country. <clears throat> I've even been, I think, in pre-releases too in other countries. So um, it, is, it is a cool thing. And, and it's, it has become something really big in magic. Um, it's funny that when we started, it, like, it really was this gimmicky promotional thing. And it's now become like kind of a sta- like the the staple of organized play. Like magic, organized play is a huge part about a magic, and it has become the cornerstone. Like things are built around it. You know, we learn. Um, we've learned how much it m- means to people. So my one plea before we end today is, if you've never been to a pre-release, please, please, please go to a pre-release. They're a lot of fun. Uh, if you have been to a pre-release, which is the majority of people listening to me. If you've never taken someone to a pre-release that's never been before, that is my... I'm giving you homework. See, you listen to my podcast, you get homework. Um, next pre-release, or, or a pre-release, find someone that's never been to a pre-release that plays Magic. Find someone that's never been to a pre-release and take them to a pre-release. It is a lot of fun. I love watching people experience pre-releases for the first time. It's a really cool experience. And if they need to, there's ways to play with pre-constructed decks or a two-headed giant. There's formats that we do to make it a little easier if they're a little newer to it. If building a sealed deck, for example, is intimidating to them. Um, but what I say is take them. Take them to a pre-release. Pre-releases are a whole lot of fun. And um, anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys... Uh, I like doing this history uh, podcast from time to time so you guys could get a glimpse into to some aspect of magic. So today was all about the pre-release. So anyway, I'm now driving into Rachel's school. So we all know what that means. I mean, this is the end of, and then that means this is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.